0: Welcome to Rejuvenaging with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, I'm a positive health psychologist and also a TEDx and keynote speaker and author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenaging: the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym. It's your source of all kinds of information regarding wellness, positive psychology, my own spin on it, which I call Goal Achieving Psychology, Rejuvenating, and it's even the place to go to suggest future guests for the podcast. As listeners are aware, our guests are always people who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and can help us in various <laughs> ways to lead ours in the most enthusiastic manner and be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Each guest seems to come at it a little different way, but all of them are you know, terrific, and both from a role modeling and a help standpoint. And we're especially fortunate today to have Richard Friesen. Uh, Richard is CEO of the Mind Muscles Academy. He is the creator and developer of the innovative and exclusive Mind Muscles training process that turns the psychology of training on its head. He works with financial professionals, independent traders, business leaders, and entrepreneurs who want to expand their mental game to make more consistent profits. I think we're all interested in that, with in-depth experience as a broker, floor trader, financial software developer, and entrepreneur. I don't know what else he hasn't done. Maybe that would have been a shorter list. He (laughs) brings concrete, real-world experience to his clients. Now, uh, what may be surprising is, I'm not gonna say that Rich holds an MBA. He actually has a BA in philosophy, a master's degree in clinical psychology. I knew I liked him, and he's a graduate of the Gestalt Institute in San Francisco, along with having master's certification in neurolinguistic programming. His background in psychology has been instrumental in his development of mind muscles training programs that supports the financial and business community. Richard is a popular speaker on topics of psychology, money management, politics, personal transformation. And he's also writing a book that's entitled Conversations with Money. I'm sure many of us uh, have had our own conversations with money, but probably not as productively as Rich has. So (laughs) welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It is such a pleasure to have you with us.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. I've listened to some of your other podcasts, and I'm—it's really inspiring. You have a number of people who have uh, great points of view, and I love your gentle interviewing process that brings out the best. So, I'm looking for an energetic and creative con- and a creative
0: conversation. Great. I've been looking forward to this for a long time too. So, uh, let me start with um, the obvious question. With is obvious to me. What is the concept of Mind Muscles and what is the Mind Muscles Academy? Well,
1: I started out thinking about the, the traders, hedge fund managers, and professional money managers because that was the world I lived in for two decades. And as I started thinking about the issues and problems that they had, it's rather obvious that the mental game is where it's all at. I built a trading firm and I hired traders and it turned out that some of the traders made it and some of them didn't. And I had a sense of what that was about. And I can tell you a personal story about that if you would like. Sure. It was, uh, April is way back, April of 95. I woke up in the middle of the night. I heard a voice, a voice as clear as I can hear your voice now and it said, Rich, you're only worth 200,000 a year. (laughs) So I woke up, I looked around, my wife was sleeping peacefully beside me, but I knew that something had shifted, something really deep. I got up, showered dressed, drove to uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge to the Pacific Exchange in San Francisco. I got there so early that the doors weren't even open yet, and I waited. When the doors opened, I stepped into the pit that I traded, it was Micron and Microsoft, and I took the best spot in the pit. I need to give you a little bit of background. The Rich Friesen, the philosophy major, the therapist who kind of got into trading because he knew a buddy and was kind of by accident, I normally stood at the back of the pit. I was very careful. I'd buy a little here, sell a little there. I had my complex sheets and processes. And when I started trading on my own, like the first year I was very careful, I made 125,000. Next year, very carefully, I made 150, then 175, then 200. Then for two years after that, I leveled out at 200,000 a year. And that's when in April, the dream happened and that's when I realized something changed. So I got to the pit, I stood in the best spot. I know probably very few people know about pits, but you don't own a spot. It's it's commandeered by the most aggressive, person with the most capital, the meanest, the guy who has social control. So it's the toughest guy and it's almost all guys in the pit at that time, all that's changed a lot now but it was the toughest. And so I stood in the spot of the toughest guy. So as everybody started drifting in, he stood beside me chatting away and the bell went off and he just tapped me on the shoulder like, okay, time to get out. <laughs> I didn't move. <laughs> well, you can imagine the whole pit kind of just stepped back goes, oh, <laughs> and And he started shoving and we were warned by the exchange staff. We'd get a $10,000 fine each if we got into a fight. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there on, on the opening. I'm going to step back from the mic. I went buy a 50, sell a hundred buy them. sold. I just went and the pit thought I had gone berserk. Mm -hmm. But what happened was there was a moment in the middle of the night that I realized I was holding myself back, that it was my internal mindset. That was the issue. It wasn't anything else. I wasn't worthy. I didn't deserve it. Other people deserved it more than I did. They were smarter than I. They were more competent than I. I looked at all my peers around me. Oh, they just had so much more. And here was Rich Friesen, a philosophy major who's, quite, who's tall, skinny, didn't quite belong. Oh, I did, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> But in the middle of the night, I woke up and
0: said, I'm done with this. Hmm. Boy, that's uh, that's so interesting. I, I didn't know which way it was going to go when you told me about waking up in the middle of the night and hearing a voice. I thought, now, now I've got somebody who I can do some work on it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uh, wondering, just generally, trying to relate it to uh, to my experience uh, choosing a career and so on. I can't imagine how somebody goes from not being a business major to getting into trading, even, uh, you know, without taking it that extra level. What, and I know you said a friend introduced you to it, but there, there must've been something, you know, that enabled you to make that journey to, to say, hey, this, this might be all right. It wasn't- like- I re-
1: Yeah, I resisted that journey. My friend said, come on, join us. Had I joined him at that time, I could have become a partner because it was early on. But I thought, oh, I don't really deserve it. So I went to work for Merrill Lynch to kind of learn the ropes. But it was, I was drugged there, you know, kicking and screaming almost because that wasn't part of the concept of who I was. And it was that conflict. Rich Friesen, who he is, philosophy major, thinker, teacher, coach, you know, that kind of a guy but I was put into this environment and like you said, almost by accident. And then there was this conflict that I carried to that new job and that new career. And it took a while to realize that I was just done
0: with the old concept. So interesting. Can you talk a little more about the mindset aspect? Because I'm wondering for those of us who uh, haven't had one of these awakenings in the middle of the night and need to work on building our mindset, you know, just by doing it, by saying some things to ourselves. I I think whether we deal with money, whether we deal with lots of other things, I think the notion of feeling that I'm not worthy or that there are, you know people who are really good at this, who belong in the middle of the pit or who <laughs> belong in the director's chair or belong as the, the president of the company or the developer of this software or things of this nature. What, what advice do you have for, for people just in terms of self-examination and, and building the mindset? Well, what
1: you brought up was really important in that I kind of came at it accidentally. But I think what you're asking is, how do we do this intentionally? Can we do this intentionally? And this is where I live and breathe. How can we learn from my accident and the accident of other traders that, that I uh, trained? Can we learn from that and make it intentional? And that's what Mind Muscles is about. How we can create intention in our lives that will give us the fulfillment, the meaning, uh, fill our goals, the happiness that we want. And that's a process. And a a high level process of that outline would be what I call the golden keys, awareness, acceptance of what we learn, and then asking ourselves, now what do we want? And that's a continual cycle. Secondly, we look at stepping into the self that we want. Now, as fascinating as it seems, it was really fascinating to me to find out when I asked uh, traders or my entrepreneurs, tell me and describe in detail the life that you want. Well, of this, and then I can and the boss, and then, then I don't have the ability, then, okay. That's the problems that we have. We've gone through those, set those aside. Now. Describe in exquisite detail the life that you want. Well, we got going back a little. So our brains will not take us to a new place that isn't safe. We have our survival mechanisms and our survival mechanisms prefer to stay in the struggle that we know, then step into a new and better state because their survival mechanisms don't care for happy. (laughs) They just say, we're going to reduce risk. And if it's new, it's risky and we're not gonna let it go. So in our work together with my clients, we say, we, we help develop clarity where we're going, what that state looks like and feel like. Then we look at objections, what I call the ecology. Who would object? Oh, nobody would object. Oh, what would you give up? Oh, I wouldn't give up anything, it would be wonderful. And then we drill down and say, okay, what stops you? And this is a question I'll ask, we'll go through this and I'll say, okay, seriously, what stops you? They'll pause, the eyes will go up, down, round. What stops you? And as we drill down on what stops them, it's interesting. I had three traders that I hired and a bunch of them made a bunch of money three of them were just stuck. So I was fortunate enough to have a budding hypnotherapist, my sister who just graduated from hypnotherapy school, came down to the exchange. She worked with him. One of them loved and revered his father. His father was an immigrant, worked two and three jobs, uh, struggled to put his kids through school, and his, and the son would really respected the sacrifices he made. And it turns out his dad made $125,000 a year as toward the end of his career. And this trader would come up to 125,000 and then give it away, come up to 125,000, give it away. All subconsciously out of his awareness. And with hypnosis, he realized that if he made more money, money than his father and made it easily, the message was be, father, you worked too hard, you wasted your time, Uh, I'm making this money frivolously, it's disrespecting you." So the subconscious voice underneath it all that he was totally unaware of was this limitation and this block. Another trader came from uh, poverty in West Virginia and very tight family and the family structure there was really important. And if he made a lot of money, he would lose his family. So. These were co- the kind of subconscious limitations that some of my traders have. And now some of my clients, all of them are individual, but they have these limits that they are unaware of. So we we start with awareness. We go to acceptance to accept whatever we learn, that's okay. And then we ask, now, what
0: do we want? That's, you know, it, as I hear it, it sounds like there's so many behaviors where you can apply the same principles, people who have difficulty losing weight or getting physically fit through exercise or increasing their, their intellectual functioning if they've been operating at a level that's, that's lower than what they're capable of. And it seems like so many uh, of the same principles would really apply, but it makes me wonder... Why, why do so many people have a problem with money? How do, how do people get <laughs> trouble with money? You know, I, again, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. it sound like a dumb question, but I'm, no. I, you know, there's just so many people that, you know, struggle in this regard. Well, I have an exercise
1: it's uh, I call it a three chair exercise and it comes from NLP and I have three chairs and I have a person sit in one chair. Then we put a pile of money or gold or bank statements or something that represents money for them in the chair, another chair. And then we have the other chair uh, reserved for the wise observer. And in a gestalt sense, if you're familiar with that, we have them talk to money. And the conversation will be something like, why are you so far away? Why don't you like me? Why do you come and then you go? There'll be some anger, for example, would be one example. And then we have them sit in money chair and become money. You grasp onto me, you try to hold on to me, you, you reach for me. I just want to like, feels like I'm a, a girl who's constantly being groped.
0: Mm.
1: And so I tell, ask money, how far away would you like to move your chair to be comfortable? And money will say, the person acting as money will take that part and move the chair back and say, okay, I'm comfortable here. Then we have them go to the wise observer and say, okay, what do you notice about the interaction here? What do you see? And then they will come up with a story about what, how they see these two reacting. So what we have again is a whole bunch of beliefs, behaviors that are out of awareness, that are constantly draining our energy and destroying the rapport that we have with ourselves, and with money. So, Conversations With Money, the book, is about establishing that rapport with yourself and rapport with money. And I have a whole bunch of ways that we look at to do that.
0: Okay, well, really looking forward to the, the book coming out. Is, is there a projected date or anything? <laughs> uh, yeah, two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Having written one, I know how that goes. Yeah. Um, I, have, I hired an editor
1: who was just wonderful. She went in and she cut out one-third of it. Ouch.
0: Oh, ooh, not that part. Yeah, you, you feel <laughs> like you own that. Yeah. That this part a beautiful part. So like anyway, we've got, part it, almost,
1: we've got it almost locked down. It's going to have an online companion so people can do these exercises online and not just read the book but actually experience viscerally uh, the experience that the protagonist, Joe, does as he, as he marches through arguments and a uh, relationship with money. So we have a ephemeral kind of a character, Money, who visits Joe in the middle of the night. And they start having a series of conversations about Joe's lack of rapport with money and stepping into rapport with money.
0: Boy, really looking forward to to reading that at some future date. Uh, (laughs) We're getting there. We're we're this close. (laughs) In the meantime, I've got a few fragmented questions that don't necessarily flow, but just kind of got kicked off in my mind. One is I've known a number of people, either personally or observed, uh, who have a lot of money, and every time you see them, they really uh, look unhappy. I'm just wondering. I mean, I always told myself, Jesus, if I had their money, I, I'd somehow make it work a little better. I'd be be a little happier with it. What what's that all about? Why can somebody oh, yeah. be able to live, you know, several lifetimes on what they've got and uh, You'd think, geez, why would this guy have such a, a sour look on his face? Always seem to be unhappy and so on.
1: Oh, well, that is such that I'm so glad you brought it up. That's the myth. Well, when we get here, we're going to be happy. When I have this much money, I'm going to be happy. <sighs> but in my world and the model I work with, happiness can only happen right now, right here and it's a process. I can look around the world, I can be here with you, I can have this moment of connection, and I can feel satisfaction and happiness. In my experience is, and part of the reason for this book, is that many people have a hole in their heart. They've missed love in their lives. They've, like my father, always made up his lack of presence by, Uh, saying, oh, we'll do this next week, we'll do this. You're always making promises in the future, for example. So we all have this emptiness or hole to some degree in our heart. And we think this will fill the hole. If I can only get this attractive man to marry me, or if I can only make this much money, or if I can get this really cute girl to marry me, then I'll be happy. Or if I can have a big house or a Maserati or take vacations, then I'll be happy. But what we're doing, we're trying to fill the hole in our heart with something that just can't do it. And as a result, when we get to that next stage, it gives us an emotional thrill for some time. And then there's the letdown. Mm -hmm. So when I work with my clients, I look for, or I ask the question, having that, what will that do for you? Then I go down a level. And having that, what will it do for you? And if sometimes it takes an hour or two hours, but finally we get to tears, and I can feel them coming up in myself right now as I talk to you. We come up with what we really want in our lives is love, is acceptance, and what you brought up earlier, to be noticed, to be important, to be valuable to ourselves and to others, to have meaning in our lives and that has nothing to do with money. Now, once that is the process in our lives, rather than money, is to continually work, and this is a lifelong journey, as you know, but we're working on the right hard problem. Now, our relationship with money changes completely. Rather than grasping it to fill something in here, all of a sudden, we're looking to say, how can I deliver value to others? What skills do I have to deliver value? And once we shift to that, to delivering value to other people, then we can charge for that value and we make money, but money is not the goal. Money is the result of a process that we create that allows us to be perceptive, to be talented, to be creative and to deliver
0: value to others. Totally different way of looking at things than many of us have been socialized to, to think, which leads to the question: Are are you an anomaly in your field, or are there other people who <laughs> are able to straddle both both worlds of uh, kind of psychology related and and finance?
1: Well, the truth is, I feel like a real outlier, hmm. and. The reason is I'm looking at our cultural shifts and changes. I'm looking at our young people and the conflict in our culture around wealth and success. On one hand, we, up, we look up to movie stars and, and people who are in the news who are successful. We look up to the very wealthiest people who've made a difference in our in lives. But what we also do is we resent wealth, we resent success because we've removed value from money and we just see money out there. You know, there's some people who are quite famous who've said there's only so much money in the world and the people who have it don't deserve it. Hmm. So there's this whole cultural trend, you know, the 1%, wealth, tax them. There's a whole internal conflict that we've absorbed culturally that is so powerful that we can't go just full out to deliver value and be wealthy because we've got all these external messages and fears that we are going to be canceled or that we are going to be ostracized, that we'll, our family will disown us, that our friends will look upon us differently. So the whole culture around money has shifted significantly. And that's
0: part of why I wrote the book. What a tremendous service you're doing. And again, this is, this is so fascinating to, to hear this stuff. I'm gonna ask you about two particular groups of people and how your principles may apply. First of all, as you may be aware, certain percentage of our listeners are, came to our podcast from my book or people who told them about it. So they're in the, the senior years. And years ago, I, I always use the example when uh, the Social Security Act was passed in 1935, uh, the average lifespan was like 61 years of age. It was, I mean, that's a bit of a distortion because you, you have, uh, you had more childhood diseases and th- there were still people that, that lived a fairly long life, but average lifespan was 61 years of age and Social Security didn't kick in until 65, so that the notion of doing much planning for what you have when you retire was, wasn't all that relevant nowadays uh the average lifespan i don't unfortunately it may have been shortened some by COVID. but if you reach the age of 65 uh, i know the last time i checked uh, average was 18 to 20 more years and certainly uh, a lot of people uh, Mm -hmm. you know live longer than that in with some of the people with whom i work i know there's there's a genuine fear of running out of money before they run out of time I'm wondering, uh, under those circumstances, uh, years ago there was, I, I know the advice and it pro- probably is still given that at certain ages you invest a particular way. And by the time you get to be 65, it's probably all cash and bonds or something like that. If you've got 20 years left or, or even longer, should a 65 year old be investing like a 45 year old now or do you have some investment advice for somebody who's you know who's doing okay they they, you know they're they're handling things but uh the thought that uh, what's it going to be like 25 years from now is scary oh it is we
1: are at a time that i would love to give everybody comfort but If we look at all the pension funds from county, city, state, uh, union, federal, they're all broke. Mm -hmm. Many state of Illinois, for example, one of the worst examples is broke. Mm -hmm. The United States is cranking out uh, trillions of dollars of both debt and monetization, just creating money out of thin air. So as a result, if we look after World War II, you looked at a stock, you looked at its progress, you looked at the management, you look at the, the future, and you try to determine long-term what was going to happen, but the economic situation right now is so manipulated and so top-down with more and more centralization that almost anything can happen. So as a result, can we depend on Social Security? Can we depend on our retirement funds and whatever? And I'll just say for myself, the answer is I'm really concerned. I am moving more and more of my assets and this is not advice for anybody at all. I'm just saying that uh, toward inflationary, things that will do well in inflation as a hedge, I'm looking at, the, the potential for taxes, they're floating it on retirement funds now. So there's all sorts of ways that the rules can be changed in the future. So what do we do? First of all, we can't make any assumptions and we have to look at a whole bunch of possibilities. What happens is we've all made a bunch of assumptions. Like I have a number of friends who say, oh, my retirement's secure and I'm just gonna do it and I'm not gonna worry. As a result, they can't see anything else that's happening and they can't adjust. So what I do is I advise everybody. In fact, I have uh, a game that we play where we look at a whole, we play scenario games. And once you have in mind that there could be a hyperinflation game, there could be, if debt collapses, a deflationary game. It could be, we could go back to productivity and have just a, a repetition of the past, or we could have some big cyclical change. Now, if our mentally we are prepared for several scenarios and say, okay, all those are possible, then, or if you're familiar with poker, they have tells. That's where you kind of notice the behavior or the, an expression on somebody's face in poker to kind of give you a tell or information. Now, if you have a whole bunch of scenarios you've created and you look at the tells, what would it need to be for hyperinflation? What are the things that you would look for? What would have to go into place before then? If we have deflation, if we had a robust economy, if we move to a higher socialist state or more command and control and centralization, what are the tells that would have to be in place? I'm not saying that any one of these, I'm not predicting because I don't know. And if I did tell you I know, uh, you should totally ignore me. So I have no idea what's going to happen. But what I'm doing is I'm looking at different scenarios and saying, "What are the indicators as they happen that tells us we're more likely to go down this path? And how can I adjust my retirement funds to to reflect the higher likelihood of those possibilities?"
0: Where does somebody learn what that what that means? You know, in in other words, you're. You're a professional in the field. uh, Somebody who's a retired person who hasn't been in the financial industry and faces the same questions. Should people uh, like having a a, a geriatric physician? Are there people (laughs) who who should be uh, financial advice or should seek financial advisors that specialize in this? Are there? programs uh, are, you no,
1: there's not there's, and this is what's really frustrating with me. We start with our kids and we're not teaching them the basics of thinking, how to analyze, how to invest, what, how money works. None of that. In fact, all of that is kind of put under a political rubric anymore that doesn't give kids the chance to really analyze and think. In fact, I'm starting to read more and more about educational processes, because as these kids grow up, we have blinders on and we think this is going to be the future. We look at the immediate past and say, this is what's gonna happen. And when something else happens, then what? Panic. And the worst thing for a country or culture is when a majority of people panic. And I'm afraid that so many people are locked into a certain view of the future when it doesn't happen for whatever reason, we're gonna have a huge emotional reaction. We're already starting to see emotional reactions on the street in our country. And that could get increased significantly.
0: Didn't I tell you I was a positive psychologist? I mean, geez, I, <laughs> what are you doing to my, you're gonna drive my audience away.
1: I know, uh, but, 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 I, here's, but here's what you can do. And here's what's really important. If we look to the world to define our meaning in our life, if we look to the world to define our futures, it's hard to be positive. But what if you have confidence in yourself and that you can see the world as it unfolds? You can create happiness in a whole bunch of different worlds because you are an agent, you control your meaning, you control your life. So what you are doing, and I think this is especially important what you are doing right now, if we have more chaos in the future, internalizing happiness, internalizing a positive outlook, that is gonna be so important. And if you can move enough people to a positive outlook, you can actually dampen cultural chaos. So I support you all the way in that.
0: Okay, it made me feel better now. (laughs) Okay, good. As I said, there is one other group that uh, before we quit that, Want to get some advice on uh, what do I tell my kids or my teenage grandchildren? Uh, what? How does it sounds from what I'm hearing that that people aren't any better prepared for dealing with financial issues than than they were in my time? Is there something that a conscientious parent of uh, you know? Teenager or young adult or somebody who is uh, at an age when when they're capable of processing some of this stuff, uh, you got any advice?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things, and I and I owe this all to my wife. First, she gave them a bank account, and she was the banker, and she paid them one percent interest a month, compounded, and every month she would enter their their allowance into there. And then she would show them what interest they were collecting. And I'll be damned if they didn't want to withdraw it because they loved seeing that free interest come in. Now, you might make it even 5% a month or something that they can visually see. The second thing my wife did is she started them in a business. She bought a snow cone machine, you know, like Hawaiian shaved ice kind of a thing. And they went to school events, to fairs, to street markets, and that kind of a thing. And they worked and they, they kept their own accounting. They, they learned business. They put the money in the savings account and they got interest. So actually doing things, uh, I think, is, is the best. And give the kids agency, give them responsibility and allow them to feel good about value they're producing for other people.
0: That's terrific, and I would think that if they kind of grow up that way, then that's one of the things that they think about, whatever field they go in or whatever that they they have some sense of what money is and what it means and what delaying certain uh, kinds of gratifications might lead to as things build up and and so on. So, really good advice. I could. Keep talking with you indefinitely, but one of my unhappy tasks is bringing these podcast episodes to a close, (laughs) but before I do, and and we'll have this in in the show notes, uh, what's the title of the book that we should all be looking for at some point in the future? Conversations
1: with Money, and if you want to sign up to be alerted, you can go to conversations.money, M-O-N-E-Y. So rather than .com, it's .money, .money. conversations.money. There's a place I think to sign up to get notified when the book is released. And we'll also keep you up to date. Uh, I do online groups and we do uh, individual work with people uh, who have financial, emotional blocks and so forth. And and that is just really uh, fulfilling for me to see people blossom financially. It's just, oh, it
0: feels so good. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is, that's the same the same place conversations.money right. for, for that because you did mention you have clients and you said you also have groups and stuff or that uh, that people will be able to be in touch with you then at conversations.money.
1: Yeah, or they can, if you want to, you can email me rich at mindmuscles.com, rich at mindmuscles.com com.
0: That's mind muscles plural. Okay, and that's all one world, one word. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> world two, I guess. Anyway, uh this has been great, Rich. It's been so informative and uh so down to earth in the way that you present it and so helpful to so many people. And I think this may not be the last time that we have you on we'll- we really, really learned a lot from you.
1: Well, good. And love to find a way to work with you further because I so appreciate the work you're doing and the, the invitation you're making to a lot of people in the world to uh, be uh, happy, to be productive, and to uh, be positive about their life and their future. And that is, just can't be appreciated enough.
0: Well, you're a a real example of what happens if you approach life with enthusiasm. And I do look forward to uh, collaborating with you. Uh, I I think it'd be great. So once again, thank you. And for all the listeners, uh, you really had a treat today. I hope you'll download, subscribe, Listen obviously, rate and review the podcast, and be back next week when we have another very interesting guest. Can't promise we'll have quite as as much as we got today, because this was really unusual on a different topic than than we normally discuss, and it was just great. So this has been rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Remember my website is the Mental Health Gym. Please visit to get additional information in the area of positive psychology and to recommend future podcast guests. While Rich's book is not out yet, you know that mine is. So if you haven't gotten Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm, please visit Amazon and get it in one of its formats uh, paperback, ebook, or audiobook and everybody, I hope you will take note on the show notes of how you get in touch with Rich, how you can be on the list for being notified when the book comes out. And also, hopefully you might wanna re-listen to this one because it's got some real practical advice uh, for those many of us who have some issues with money. Not always uh, not always pleasant ones, but it sounds like there are a lot of things that we can do to help feel more in control of our monetary lives. So thanks again, Rich. And this is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off. Everybody stay safe and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.